honesty hour, I did not know what I was doing in regards to launching this podcast. And I wouldn't have been able to do it without Anchor. Anchor makes starting a podcast super, super easy and allows you to not only use their platform to distribute the podcast, but you can even go on your phone or computer and record and edit the podcast right on their platform. Best of all, it's totally, totally free. So if you're interested in starting a podcast, download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started today. There's a generational thing. We've almost convinced ourselves I should reply to a text immediately. Yeah. And I mean, think about it. We're more, we're expecting someone to reply to a text more than we're expecting them to answer their phone. True. That's like completely illogical. And by the way, the most inefficient way to solve a problem because communication one way, one way at a time. I mean, when I was a kid, we passed notes in school. Right. And you realize how dumb of an idea that was. Well, all we've done is automate note passing. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it, can it be occasionally useful? Sure, but think about how much more richer a conversation is. I mean, how much richer this conversation oh, is, right? Yeah. There's the human cues. I just think so much of what we're missing today is we're trying to go so fast. Welcome to the Strange on Purpose podcast. I have with me Chuck Swoboda, former CEO of Cree and now a wonderfully fantastic in the art of retirement guy. So welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks. It's great to be here. Thank you so much. So tell me about Cree, right? What got you into that space? What passion did you have that kind of led you in that direction to start? So uh, I graduated from Marquette and I was working for Hewlett Packard out in Silicon Valley. And uh, they were one of the pioneers of LEDs. And along, one day I'm in a meeting and these guys come in and want to pitch a blue LED. So at the time, the blue LED doesn't exist. And I go to this meeting and we sit in the basement and these two guys come in and they go, you want to see it? I go, yeah. And we turn off all the lights and you could barely see this little blue light. And they go, isn't that amazing? I go, well, yeah. They said, could you sell a lot of them? I said, no. (laughs) And I said, why not? I said, well, it's way too dim and it's way too expensive. And we talked for about an hour and they left. I figured I'd never hear from them again. I was just there to give my input. And I started getting recruited and one thing led to another. I eventually went to uh, North Carolina to interview. And uh, the thing about Cree at the time was is you played basketball as part of your interview. Okay. And uh, and so I got a job offer, um, almost didn't take it because I had this great career at HP. It was kind of, I had this, I knew what I had in front of me. I had this career and I had this, thing in North Carolina, which was this idea around this blue LED, but like when I say it was an unknown opportunity, they wouldn't even allow me to go inside the building during my interview. Really? No, they were so paranoid that the technology could get out to someone like HP at some point, Mm -hmm. you couldn't go in the building. So eventually I'm having a conversation with my wife and she says, you know, if you don't do this, you're going to spend the whole rest of your life wondering what could have been. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know what you're you're worried about. So I did it, went to Cree and uh, spent 25 years. So Starts out as a 30-person company with about $6 million in revenue. Ends up 25 years later, $1.6 billion. That's crazy. Uh, about 6,500 employees around the world. Uh, I spent the last 16 years as the CEO. And really what it was is a company built around innovation and, and originally around the material science to make new semiconductors that could make blue light and do other things. Okay. And, and so that's the journey we went on. And it was so... It was so unlikely that it would succeed that if you'd asked any of the quote experts at the time, 
Mm. When I left HP, most of them told me I'd be back in two years because the company would be out of business. Um, and what it was is they, they were right. The problems we were trying to solve were that hard, but the group of people I got to work with were just, they were phenomenal innovators. And that's the, that's the most beautiful thing. What did you take away or what did you grow into that position? Because you didn't start as CEO, president. How did you grow into that position? So I started out as the LED product manager, which is a fancy title for I was the head of sales and marketing. <laughs> um, I think I was a department of one. And in fact, the first day I got there, they said, what do you want me to do? They said, well, we don't have any orders. Oh. Well, that would be important, right? Yeah. yeah. So go get some. Well, where do I go get them? I don't know. That's why we hired you. Oh, so I got on an airplane, started traveling around the world, and uh, that's actually how it got started. So, um, but back to your question, it, what we were trying to do, and I think I, I just screwed this up completely. Where were you asking my question? Just again? how did you build into that leadership? Position? Oh, so I know that you talk a lot about it in what seems to be, you know, going into your book, as we'll talk about in a bit, but just. You know, it doesn't come naturally and you weren't hired into that position. So how did you develop into that leader for that company? So I was never trying to get the next job. I never tried to get a promotion, never really worried about it too much. Um, the idea at Cree was we were so busy trying to survive. So whether it be that initial thing of trying to start in sales, you just had to solve the problem in front of you. And so literally I was working on that. And one day they said, that's great. We got designed in and my boss came to me and said, hey, our product makes their product possible. Go buy the company. Well, how do I do that? I don't know. <laughs> so I got on an airplane and went and figured out how to buy a company. And we did that for a couple of years and that was going okay. And then we lost our biggest customer. Um, and so I was trying to figure out how to keep that business alive. And one day, it was actually, it was actually April Fool's Day okay. in 1996. I get a call uh, one afternoon and Neil Hunter, who was my boss and the CEO says, hey, I need you to do me a favor, we just fired the head of ops. Um, can you show up tomorrow morning and be the head of ops? Okay, I guess I could do that. Yeah, just be here at seven. Uh, one of the guys will introduce you and you need to figure this out. So literally I packed up my office one night, showed up the next day and I went from being the general manager of a business really focused on sales and marketing to the next morning I'm running manufacturing. And it kind of went that way. One day I was sitting around and a different guy quit. I need you to do that job. And eventually I became uh, the president and the COO, and then my boss decided he was burned out, and mm -hmm. uh, he quit in his late 30s, and really? I, none of the other founders wanted the job, and so I was a volunteer. And uh, the, basically didn't give the board a lot of choice. I don't think I would have been their first choice, but they were stuck, so uh, they gave me the job. And uh, so I kind of ended up in a leadership role. I wasn't, I was always working on it at Cree, mm -hmm. It's fundamentally a leadership environment. There was gotcha. no pro it was there was not a lot of process or management okay. structure. So essentially you're practicing those skills every day and um, probably a lot of people suffered from my practicing, right? Because you're not very good at it in the beginning. But I got to try a lot of different things and one day I ended up, I'm 34 years old and I'm the CEO of a public company. And uh, so you just figure it out. True that. What if what skills or abilities did you need to learn or did you kind of have to teach yourself in order to become successful in that role? I think when I got the job, I knew a lot about products and markets. I was, a, I was pretty comfortable with the tangible parts of the business. I think the thing it's always hard to learn is, I think leadership's a learned skill, and I think you evolve over time. And I think for, so when I was in the beginning, I expected everyone to be motivated the same way I was. And I think what I learned over time is that uh, everyone's motivated a little bit differently. And 
I wanted them to do what I wanted them to do. Right. And really it was up to me to create a reason for them to follow. So I think early on leaders expect you get the job and people will follow you. No, that, that makes you the manager. Mm -hmm. The leader is someone that people follow because they choose to. And so figuring that out right. was a really tough dynamic. The other thing is I don't know that I, I wasn't a very good listener. Um, I wanted, I was pretty good at solving problems. That's how I mm -hmm. got the job. And, but running a large company and leading people is way more about listening than it is about talking and doing. That's the absolute truth. I know from my perspective, I always knew that I wanted to be an entrepreneur, but I didn't know that I would be in a leadership position. You know, I thought I would be a solopreneur. I thought that I would just be a full-time freelancer that called himself an entrepreneur, right? But I never saw myself in that leadership position. So it's good insight to have that from, from you as well, because you do learn it. You know, you, you don't know what's going to work for one person that might not work for another. And you have to learn all of those things. I think the mistake most people, and so I spent the last 16 years building my team and, and rebuilding it as we grew. And so I probably spent more time doing leadership development than I did anything else. And I think the number one problem people don't appreciate is that leadership is actually, they, they think the problem is about the team mm -hmm. and leadership is 100% about you. Yeah, It's about me. If the team's not following, that's only on me. And I think so many people want it to be about someone else. And that was the that was really the challenge I had is that teaching people, you get promoted as a manager typically, but once your job becomes about leadership, really being honest that this is all on you, I think a lot of people struggle with that. What resources, if any, did you have to kind of help you along that road? Or does it kind of just come by practice? No, so in the beginning we uh, did it by, yeah, we did it by trial and error. Mm -hmm. um, I think there's lots of stuff, there's lots of stuff to be read that's interesting out there. I think part of it, if you're gonna be a leader, you also need to be a lifelong learner yeah. because there is no, the answer is always changing and evolving. Um, but we ended up over time getting some resources. In, in North Carolina, there's a group called the Bell Leadership Institute. And uh, happened to meet the guy who runs it, Dr. Jerry Bell, because my team was actually trying to convince me to change our culture. They thought he would help okay. convince me. And the day I met him, he says, you shouldn't change anything. What you actually have is to teach the rest of the team how to be leaders. And so he helped get us involved in something, which is, he has a model, it's called how to be an achiever. And it, it's really based on his study of over 10,000 leaders over his career. And it gets really into how do leaders work? What makes them successful or not? Um, and how do you then change them? And, and one of the amazing ahas I got from him was, so you know when you're coaching someone, you're like, hey, I think you'd be more effective if you tried this. And we often give people examples of different behaviors we'd like them to exhibit. And the challenge is, is that my team would do that and they'd have limited success or they would try it and then really they weren't doing it. Mm -hmm. And there's great research that shows that our behaviors are a function of whatever our core beliefs are. Right. So if you actually wanna change behavior, you actually have to get into someone's core beliefs. That's pretty easy when we're young, but by our mid-20s, our beliefs are fairly well locked. So I'm trying to coach 40-something-year-olds, sometimes 50-year-olds, who have these locked set of behaviors to changing their beliefs to make them, and that's a really hard thing to do, and uh, it's a very personal and emotional experience, and I think that was the, his advice around that helped me make far more progress than I made before that. Were there any 
specific moments that stood out to you as CEO that kind of really struck you as that moment? No, <laughs> my life was all moments. <laughs> there was, uh, when you go from such a small company to a large company, it basically it was slightly controlled chaos. Mm -hmm. there, was, there was never a week where something didn't feel like it went absolutely wrong, they weren't <laughs> adapting. And by the way, it could be people or business issues. Right. Um, you know, I remember the day early on, I'd been at Cree maybe a year, and we have the world's only blue LED. Okay. And a fax comes in, I'm gonna date myself for the audience, right? This is, yes, this is a high-tech way to get information. <laughs> fax comes in from a company in Japan that has announced a new LED that is 500 times brighter than ours. Oh boy. And I'm going, looking at my boss going, um, that seems like a bad thing. He goes, well, it's not good. <laughs> and I said, uh, so what are we gonna do? Because I'm pretty sure we're going out of business now. He goes, don't worry, we've got one too. I said, we do? He goes, well, we will. Oh, and your job is to go convince people that we're gonna have one and get orders for it. So he took me through this short speech about how the scientists were all in. We'd actually been working on a similar technology. We just hadn't gotten there yet. They said they're committed to have a product in six months. So we sat in my office with my Mac Classic and we made up a presentation about the new product we had. And I put it together, bought an airplane ticket, got on a plane the next week, flew around the world and pitched our new product. I had drawings of it, it was phenomenal. <laughs> it was completely made up. Um, but we knew what we wanted to do, right? We basically yeah. knew where we had to get. And it wasn't, I mean, the term we used to use back then is vaporware. Mm -hmm. It wasn't vaporware and it was completely made up. But we had the foundations of the technology, but we had never actually gotten a functional device. But what was interesting is the moment our guys knew it, could, it was possible, it changed everything. And I think it's kind of an analogy to all this leadership stuff is believing something is possible is probably more important than anything out there. So we had worked on the technology for years, hadn't made much progress. Someone else proves it could be done. We get one and then six months later we had samples of the product. That's crazy. And, uh, and it was the, I mean, it was physics that wasn't supposed to work. Mm -hmm. So a scientist prior to these inventions would have told you, it's actually not possible for that material system to make that bright of an LED. That's crazy. I, I think that's interesting too, because I recently kind of came up with a personal anecdote of, you know, if, if somebody, if you look up to somebody, that means that one, it's been done, and two, it's possible. And I think once you realize those two things, that's when you start to change your own mindset and really say, well, why am I not doing it then? Yeah, so here's the challenging part. So in that case, we had something to shoot for. Mm -hmm. So what do you do though when you don't have anything to shoot for? Because really right. what our business was, most of my 25 years is, you know, the term I like to use is we were pursuing the impossible. Mm -hmm. So how do you get people convinced to go solve a problem that no one else has proven has been done before? And it's a trick, but there's a mindset to it, and that's really what the book's all about. Yeah. Is what is this mindset? And you can, I think once people believe, you can believe something's possible without having seen it been done before. True. And that's the trick to the type of innovation that I got get really interested in now, because that was the stuff that most of what we invented has never been done before us. And uh, it just takes a completely different way of thinking about it. And uh, one of the jokes is that we didn't know a lot. So we didn't have a really experienced team. Most of the founders were scientists from university. Okay. So, 
And we hired a lot of people with not a lot of experience and uh, is an advantage. Um, we used to joke that the, the problem with experts, and someone else said this before us, but the problem with experts is they know what's not possible. True. So if you actually don't know a lot, you actually can believe anything's possible. And I know that seems like that's a hand wave and it can't be that easy, but it's true. You really have to come in every day believing something can be done that's never been done before. It makes you really dangerous, it really does. Let's talk about the book then. Okay. So, segueing into the book, I, I love the quote that you give about what your wife says, if you wanna explain that story and kinda how that came up. Yeah, so, you know, I'm a, you know, I, in hindsight, right, I work at Cree, I get all this credit for being involved in innovation all these years, and you know, I basically almost never say, I almost don't say yes to the job because I'm afraid to take that risk. And, and I think this is a critical piece for anyone who's pursuing innovation is that, so you have so much of a, so many people say they want to innovate or they want to be entrepreneurs, but they also then aren't willing to take that risk. And I was in that situation, right? Now look, I'm married, I have a four-year-old daughter, my wife's pregnant with our second child, I have a great job, and I'm gonna go work for this startup that most of my friends don't think is gonna stay in business, and no reload package. Like you okay. get in the car, you drive across the country, and hey honey, I'll come back and get you when you sell the house. <laughs> That's the plan. And so I'm going, I'm not sure we should do this. And, and the way she framed it was is, if you do this and it doesn't work out, will you have learned something? Absolutely. Do you think you can get another job? No doubt. And her point was, so what are you worried about? And, and what she really understood was, you don't wanna live your life with regret and, and this concept that you really have nothing to lose. And I think that's part of this mindset that most of what we're stopped by in, oh, and not just in innovation, everything we're trying to do is, we've convinced ourselves we have something to lose. And I think what I've learned over time at Cree, and it started out with that first conversation with my wife is, not doing something is actually almost always the biggest risk. And once you get your head around that, it actually kind of becomes easy. So the way I describe it today, it sounds like I was always wired this way, I was probably a little more risk averse the day I entered Cree. That's awesome, because I know from my perspective starting this business, I was, my dad had very early on into starting the company, my dad had just gotten cancer, he's fine, but that, you know, going through that, and then my fiance at the time was going, we were going through the K-1 visa process, she was in Canada, now she's here, we're married, obviously, so, but like, I remember, like, writing everything down on a piece of paper, and I'm looking pro, con, and I'm thinking to myself, like, okay, what happens if, what happens if, and you know, I thought to myself, do I want to go to bed saying what if, or do I want to go to bed saying, oh well? And I think at the end of the day, I said, well, I'd rather say, oh well. I knew that if I wanted, I knew, like I mentioned before we started talking, like I knew I wanted to be an entrepreneur at some capacity, but I didn't know what that would be. So I thought to myself, if I'm going to bring this lifestyle upon my family, my future wife, like, do I want to do this now when she's still in Canada, I have this time, still live at home, all of these things, or do I wanna try and potentially harm relationships, family life down the road? And you know, similar to, it's just, well, let's go. Yeah, and so I did the same thing just with the family and knowing that you know, we were, look, we were at risk. But what's interesting is by being at risk, 
you actually create a dynamic that is critical to success. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things I think that uh, people miss, and, and I use the analogy, I had this debate, I was trying to, I love to ask people to think if Apple's still innovative or not, and my argument is they're not. And then the one that gets people is, is Google. And most people argue with me that Google for sure is innovative, right? Look at all the great products they're coming out with. And, and my point is, is that Google is doing a lot of invention, but innovation is actually not just creating something new, right? It's, it's solving a problem and creating value with it. And what I would argue is, is most of the stuff Google's been doing in their internal R&D lab hasn't turned into anything viable in the last decade. It really has. Um, it's neat stuff. But the point I want to make is I think they could. I actually think Google would have a competitor to Facebook if the people that worked on that team were risking their career and their job and their paycheck on it. I think that the autonomous vehicle would be way further along if it was at risk. Like they have, if you, there is this concept that you have to succeed or we all go out of business or I lose my job. That changes the dynamic. It allows people to, there's a, there's a mindset that comes into the solving problem process that changes it. And I think that's what so many people miss, right? And let's face it, you know, most people, get to that part, you know, they're going through college or whatever, life's been kind of relatively, not necessarily easy as their but they've been protected in right. one way or another. Right. You gotta take away all that stuff because to do the hard stuff, all in is at a minimum where you gotta be. And sometimes you gotta go beyond what you thought all in there. Yeah. That's awesome. So let's get into what you're doing now, what you're doing today. How did you know when it was the right time to leave Cree? My body told me. Okay. So uh, I wasn't planning to retire. I'd been, uh, I turned 50 in January of 2017. And uh, so I went to my physical. And so, you know, I'm running a public company at these great executive physicals, check everything out, 100% good to go, not a single issue. Mm -hmm. Um, Two weeks later, I'm walking up the stairs and my heart freaked out. And I freaked out, it starts racing and I can't get it to stop. And it never happened to me before. Went to the hospital, I'm diagnosed with something called AFib, yep. which is an irregular heartbeat. And I had one, it's called RVR, so it raced. So my heart would beat for about 160 beats a minute for a couple Jeez. of days straight. Okay. And that's the bottom of your heart. The top of your heart's racing faster. Okay. So, and the doctor said, don't worry, it won't kill you. Well, I can tell you, that's not what it feels like. <laughs> There is medications and other things you could do didn't work for me. So eventually after about six weeks of going in and out of this, uh, I had heart surgery and thought everything was gonna be okay. And I uh, came home and uh, surgery's success. I'm getting ready to go to work a couple days later and uh, can't leave the house. Don't wanna leave. Um, I have no idea what's happened. I'm afraid to get up and walk out, leave the kitchen table. I have no idea what's coming, what's affecting me. Went to see my doctor and uh, was pretty quickly diagnosed with um, something called cumulative stress anxiety disorder. Um, And just to put this in perspective, in my physical a month earlier, I had told the doctor I didn't think stress affected me. And I actually Mm. believed that. Now my wife, if she was sitting here, would be laughing hysterically. But I really didn't believe it was a problem. And uh, so I, uh, all of a sudden I have this anxiety disorder that's stopping me from doing just about anything. So, what do I do? And they said, you can take medication, you go to therapy. I said, what's the highest chance of success? Do both. So I went all in. And in that process, I didn't decide to retire right away. But uh, as I started the the very early stages of recovery, I realized a couple things. One, 
my health issues, both my heart issue and my anxiety disorder were directly linked to stress. And as I said, look, being a public company CEO is most people do it for about three to four years. Mm -hmm. 16, it's an unhealthy choice. And they said, we can make you better to continue to do it if you want. But if you really don't want these symptoms to come back or then to deal with, you have to make a choice. And so after about six weeks, I decided to announce my retirement um, and uh, just walk away. Uh, it was way easier to decide to do that than I could have thought because at the time it felt like my life had been taken away from me. So I went on this journey to get better. And uh, it took them about six, seven months to find a new CEO. So I did the job, started with therapy. And um, over time, as I improved my health, I started to realize that there was part of life I'd been completely missing. So when you're a public company CEO, you are all in. And when I say all in, the day I took the job to the day I officially retired, I never stopped thinking about work. You took a vacation, but there weren't really vacations. Um, you really never sleep through the night. I ran a global company. Right. So my job every day was what went wrong today. Mm -hmm. And and I'm a type A personality that wants to solve those problems. Yeah. So I'm also wired in a way that makes me good at solving problems and bad at managing the stress yeah, that comes right, with it. Right. And so, you know, I realized I had to walk away. And in that mode, I wasn't engaged. So I I started to realize that I had lived life working and never being present. Mm -hmm. And so I took up things like yoga, I meditate every day, I learned a lot of life skills that helped me think about things differently and it led me to starting to do some things at Marquette. And so about a year later, I'm giving a talk and the talk was about uh, leading and innovation. And they said, well, that's really interesting. Some of the stuff you said is actually a lot different than what we're teaching here. And Marquette actually has a, a leadership development program yeah. that they teach in the engineering school. And the third year is innovation leadership. So they said, would you take a look at what we do? And I said, sure. Spent about six weeks, I read everything. Okay. I went through it and I came back to them. I said, this is really interesting stuff, but it doesn't work. <laughs> they said, excuse me? I said, I, I, I know that you got these materials from, you know, they come out of business schools and other right. places. And I'm just telling you, I live this. Most of what they're teaching you won't work. And I said, because they're missing two key points, that they're teaching innovation like it's a management problem. And it is not, it is a leadership problem. Management is actually, the best managers are really bad at innovation. Okay. And the second piece is, is they're teaching it like it's a process or a recipe. And it's not, it's fundamentally a people problem. Um, and that's where in that conversation, I thought I was gonna finish like walk out that day and go on with the rest of my life. And they go, that's really interesting. You need to write us a book. Oh, and I looked at them and I said, you're crazy. I'm not, I wouldn't know the first thing. Go, trust me, we'll help you. Well, you know, trust me, we'll help you at Marquette is a, or at any place right. that's looking for volunteers is a pretty scary thing when they say that, because you know, you should probably be aware that you could be in trouble when yeah. you do it. So after a couple of weeks, I decided to try it. One thing led to another and uh, started writing the book. I had more fun than I ever could have imagined. Writing the book was this incredibly eye-opening experience. So when I was at Cree, mm -hmm. I couldn't describe to you what we did. We just did it. Right. It's how, it was our culture, it's how we worked. It was, it, it was just a way of thinking and a way of acting. When I stepped away, I now had this opportunity to actually have to try to figure it out and describe it and think about it. And, 
it just became this really interesting process. And what I didn't know is I had these ideas, but in part of writing the book, what I wanted to figure out is, are these unique to career? Or are there other examples? Gotcha. And so as I came up with these beliefs that drive these innovative behaviors, I actually found examples from industries in all different places that reinforce other examples of people right. using the exact same ideas and philosophy. I would tell you it's not, it's not what the average company does, but there is far more examples of it than I thought. And so that's what kind of led to this, hey, this is pretty cool. We should talk more about it. Right. So that's how I got involved. That's awesome. Would you say now that then, well, I suppose reflecting now, would you say things may have ended up differently if you would have been able to approach being the CEO of Cree with practices that you do today, like yoga, like meditation, like those things? So I had this conversation a couple times. So I've had a chance to go back and be a CEO okay. since I retired. Um, and I haven't said yes. I'm not sure. I think those techniques would absolutely help me. But I also know who I am and how I'm wired. Okay. And I'm not sure the way I like to do things is conducive to being a healthy CEO. It, I'm sure I could do it better, and I'm sure I could do it in a more healthy way, but I would still be adding stress, and the question I haven't decided yet is, is it worth the trade-off yet? So okay. absolutely the tools would be beneficial, but I don't, I guess part of it is I don't know how much I want to change how I would do it. Okay. Yes, could I do it? Yeah. I, the reason I like this second career of working on the book and the podcast and talking to you and I'm uh, doing consulting for other companies right. is that I get to go be all in with the same passion and energy, but then when I go home at night, it's not still there. It's, okay. I, can, I can put it aside. And I think the challenge for me is when I own something completely, it's... I don't know how to turn it off. So the tools would certainly help and I would recommend them to anyone. But I think there's also part of knowing yourself and putting yourself in situations that make it possible to be successful with those tools. What's the secret to being able to turn that off? Because I know I can't. Yeah, and I'm not sure you, you should, right? I, look, you said earlier, you wanna be an entrepreneur. Right. That's your desire. There's no halfway entrepreneur. I have not met a True. single entrepreneur that did it three quarters time. There's a passion, the successful entrepreneurs, all of them have this passion. Mm -hmm. And you're gonna meet people that tell you, yeah, but you know, I'm now at a point where you know, I can kick back and, and I'm not, I have this free time. Well, they have the free time probably because they're successful. They've gotten to that end yeah. point and they're paying someone else to worry about it every True. day. Which, Sure, but they're actually probably not the entrepreneur then that they were anymore, right? They're actually managing the thing they created. And so I think there's, I don't know that you wanna fully turn it off. I think what you have to do is find a way to do it with balance. What I would say is when it starts to affect your ability to sleep, when it starts to affect your ability to sit down with your wife and be there for a conversation, that's the thing I didn't realize had happened. So I would go to dinner with my friends and my wife, and we'd go home, and I couldn't tell you what we talked about. Gotcha. No recollection, because my mind was literally somewhere else. I think in those moments, what I would say is be passionate, but if you make enough time 
when you're in the moment. So if you can learn to be present enough doing other things, I think that's the key to, to mental health, right? Which is giving your brain some breaks. And that's why, so I think the tools would work. Right. So, you know, I would tell anyone that is super intense, if you can't truly give your brain a break a couple of times a day, find a way to do it. Um, it's, it can be as simple as turning off all stimulus mm-hmm. and literally just doing a breathing exercise. And people think that, yeah, really does that work? Well, I had a lot of free time in retirement. And right. so as an engineer, I didn't want to just trust everyone that this stuff works. So I actually went and talked to people at both Duke Medical School and UNC Medical School who have a ton of research around brain science. And they've imaged the brain what is happening while we're doing meditation. And it's absolutely slowing down the neural network and let it get relief. You can actually see that it does something physically to the brain that is helping it recover or giving it those moments. And honestly, you're gonna have a tougher problem than I am. I mean, this this idea that we have all this ability to be constantly in contact, I mean, being connected is probably the most unhealthy thing you can do, and it's probably the worst thing you do for creativity. So when you wanna get really creative, what I find is having some input, but then stopping them for a little while. Because what's happening is, is you know, this concept of multitasking, mm-hmm. I think most people, I hope most people who listen to your podcast know, it's been proven. It is a fiction. Yeah. It's a figment of your imagination. It doesn't work. Your brain is actually switching between different things. The energy your brain spends switching is wasted energy. And the fact that when you go back and forth, there's a startup and it's and it's turn off time, right. that actually creates more stress in your body than if you take time to work on something and move on to the next thing. And this is, and that's, part of what you have to do. And that's why my brain was working all the time. So for me, meditation did it. It wasn't necessarily input from my email. Right. I had already learned, like, so as CEO of Cree, at 10 o'clock at night, I turned my phone to silent. And at six in the morning, it went back on. But for eight hours, if someone wanted to call me, they had to basically, while I had a landline, they had to call that line. Yeah. And very few people had that, or they just had to wait. Gotcha. It was very rare that I really needed to solve a problem between 10 p.m. and 6 a.m. Like, even if the factory was burning down, <laughs> someone else was in charge of the factory at night, yeah. not me. I right. could show up and worry about it, but what was I going to do? I, yeah. I couldn't do anything, and I think, so that's the advice. It's really, you've gotta find those moments to where, if you just be present, I think it helps. So. An example, when I, my son was growing up, I decided at one point I'd miss my two older daughters growing up. And I had this aha, and my son was eight years old, younger, and I said, screw it, I'm not doing that again. Right. I became a Little League coach. I was a public company CEO and a Little League coach. So four days a week, I would leave work at 3.30, I'd go coach Little League for two and a half, two and a half hours, and then I'd come back to work or I'd work late into the night. Right. And while I probably got less sleep, for those two hours every day, I was doing something unrelated to work. I was all in, my brain was actually being present. And in hindsight, I probably developed worse habits when I stopped coaching than before. And I I didn't realize I had things that forced me to be present. And once all my kids grew up, it got worse because I really could just do it all the time. I think 
from my perspective, the whole multitasking conversation, like when I first started the company, I was all in on trying to do everything at once. And I think very quickly I realized that it just isn't possible. So I immediately switched to post-it notes. I have post-it notes everywhere. What is the task? Like I have, you know, phone apps and checklists all over the place that keep me in line. But if I don't see it and I can't rip it up when I'm done with it, it's not going to get done. And then secondly, I recently read a book called High Performance Habits. And in that book, you kind of talked about transitions. And I think I've been able to give a lot more to each moment by saying, you know, kind of giving myself like 30 seconds between each task. So whether that's even just editing one video to the next or leaving the office to go to drive home, you know, it's a transition of what is important in this moment, who needs me in this moment, what is my task, and what do I need to do to accomplish it? And I think it's really pushed me toward just, I don't think getting more out of life because I'm able to basically smush everything instead of being all spread out and then everything's at 50% capacity, it's all in for 30 minutes, all in for 10, you know, for however long it needs to be. You know, we used to, uh, so one of the challenges when you're running a startup that grows really fast is you never have enough people. Right. And we purposely never wanted to have enough people because what it does is it forces us to teach this idea where, okay, let's sit down with what you're trying to do. And the deal we would have, and we learned this technique, I forget where we came from, but I would actually sit down with someone on my team and I'd say, you give me all the things you think you need to get done in the next week. And they'd give me a list and usually people had 10, 20 things. I'd say, all right, I'm gonna pick the three I think are the most important. And I don't want you to even touch the other ones. And when the one of those is done, come back and see me and let's figure out what the top three are again. But don't touch the other ones. And what we found is, is that we almost never took one of the four through 10 and worked on it. Hmm. Because what happens is, is that life keeps changing. And by the time something was truly completed, if you reevaluated the list, something else, you learned something, something else came up that was from, so the top three became really the most important. And what happens is you never work on these things that come to find out you would have never worked on anyways. And so much of energy, and what I see this is like social media, and we do this, and that's that's big projects mm -hmm. at work, but just think about small things in life. How easy it is to get distracted with things that, does this really matter? And if you just only work on the few things that matter, and say, look, I'll get to it. And so I use Post-it notes, by the way. Right. In fact, when I was writing the book, the ideas for the book were on the wall by chapter. And I have a wall with literally covered oh, with post-it notes of chapters. And it was really a great way for me to organize my thoughts, but also to work on one chapter at a time. Mm -hmm. And I had, so the idea pop in, I'd write it down and go on the wall and I wouldn't yep. look at it till it was time to think about that chapter. And it's this unbelievable ability for people to focus on just a couple things that matter and, and turn them off. So when I, to write the book, I just, my email was off. Mm -hmm. My phone was not answered. You just, you just don't, it's a choice. And I think that's the hard part is there's a generational thing. We've almost convinced ourselves I should reply to a text immediately. Yeah. And I mean, think about it. We're more, we're expecting someone to reply to a text more than we're expecting them to answer their phone. True. That's like completely illogical. And by the way, the most inefficient way to solve a problem because communication one way, one way at a time I mean, when I was a kid, we passed notes in school. Right. And you realize how dumb of an idea that was. 
Well, all we've done is automate note passing. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it, can it be occasionally useful? Sure, but think about how much more richer a conversation is. I mean, how much richer this conversation oh, is, right? Yeah. There's the human cues. I just think so much of what we're missing today is we're trying to go so fast, we forget to take time, and I'm probably copying from John Zaratsky's new book, Make Time, right? Yep, and he yep. has these same concepts, um, and he does a much better job of explaining them, but there's just this incredible opportunity, I think, for people to do way more well by doing less. It's an amazing, amazing concept. <laughs> so getting into now your book and your podcast, more retirement-based things, what is the answer that both you can individually or together are trying to solve? The book was my hope to share with people, what was it about Cree? What was the magic that made it work? And all I'm hoping to do is I'm hoping someone reads that book, and I don't care if it's one person or a thousand people, hopefully it's a lot of people, but whoever it is, and they have an aha moment and go, wow, if I wanna do that, I've been going about it wrong, here's how I should go about it, but more importantly, they walk away realizing if they really wanna do something, anything is possible. And if I inspire just a couple people mm -hmm. by sharing those Cree stories, I'll, the book will be worth it. That's why I did it. Um, because I actually like teaching people how to do things. Sure. And, and so much of what they're being taught is not gonna work. I wanna get rid of some of that stuff. Um, and then look, and I'm a skeptic, right? The reason a lot of that stuff's being taught is because honestly, most people write books to make money. Yeah. Or they write books to teach you a training course. I don't have a training course. I paid for the book myself. I'm likely never to make money on it. So I just wanna share it mm -hmm. because one of the things you get to do when you retire, and I've had, luckily I've had some success, is that I'm investing in people. My second career is about investing in people, whether it be you or the other people I meet, because right. I can have way more impact on the world by inspiring a few other people than I can ever doing it myself. And so that's kind of the first thing. The podcast has the same goal, but a very different perspective. The book is what I learned at Crete. Okay. The podcast is someone else's story. So. When you're doing this research on the podcast, I start to have all these really interesting conversations, realize hey, this is happening in places people don't know about. And there'll be some of the stories will be technology stories, but a big part of the goal of the podcast was tell non-tech stories. Because innovation isn't reserved for Google and Apple and Amazon or even the Crees of the world. It it happens in non-for-profits, it happens in social issues, it happens in small companies doing things like retail. Yeah. I think those stories are much more relatable. And so part of the idea is to use the podcast to tell relatable stories that it, it's kind of the, and I tried to take this the right way, but when they asked me to write the book, this is, you'd be great at telling a story because you know, you're not famous like all these oh, other geez. people. And I said, all right, well, I take that the right way because I'm not famous, and I, so I get your point. They said. So much of the challenges is when you tell someone a story about Steve Jobs to someone, whether they're early in their career or they're a student, they're like, I'm never gonna be Steve Jobs. Mm -hmm. But I think they can more, they can imagine themselves maybe being Chuck Swoboda, which may or may not be something you wanna to aspire right. to, but the point is, it's possible for anyone to do what we did. It's beautiful. Lastly, we have one question that we ask everybody that we bring on. What makes you strange on purpose? <laughs> Oh, um, 
It's a great question. The way I would take your question, the way I take being strange on purpose is I do things intentionally mm-hmm. to make people think and get a reaction. I like to purposely cause people to question things. Um, I, when I was writing the book, I put in a chapter called The Brutal Truths, but I really start out telling a story about using the word stupid and how the word stupid is an effective tool. And that offends a lot of people, but I did it on purpose. Because what I found is that getting people to think different starts with kind of almost shocking maybe is the wrong word, but you gotta get them out of their comfort zone. And so I'm a big fan of very counterintuitive ideas, not because I think the idea is actually great, because to me it gets them to think very differently. So I have a lot of fun. Most people when I've worked with know, I'm almost always gonna try to be uh, the devil's advocate. Um, And I think maybe that's my version of being strange on purpose. Beautiful, where can people find your work? So uh, they can find me on uh, Twitter and Instagram at TheChuckSwoboda. I also do a lot of stuff on LinkedIn. Uh, So in fact, I do some of my writing I put out there. So I'm spending a lot of time trying to take not only the book, but just look every day I get to meet new people and something pops into my head. And so I'm trying to keep the writing fresh. And so they can follow me in all those places. Or more importantly, if you want to hear the latest stories, Innovators on Tap is now out. We have our first five episodes and uh, you can find us at innovatorsontap.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Beautiful. Thank you so much for being on the show. It's been great fun. Thank you. Absolutely. We'll talk soon.